But I want to present Rudy Topete to you today. Uh, he's going to bring the word to us today, not just as a guest speaker, but as an official candidate to be the pastor of your church. And so it's an honor for him to be here today. And I'm honored to present him before you today. And so Rudy, come on up. I've gotten to know Rudy more and more over the last couple months. And Rudy, I just want to tell you, thank you for your heart for this area and, uh, and even for the people of this church already. Yeah. And uh, I know you've been lifting up in, in prayer and I'll let you introduce your family to them. And so <laughs> God speed, my friend, and bring the word. Thanks so much, Pastor. I appreciate it. Amen. Well, I am so excited and so incredibly honored to be here today. Uh, it was a joy to see y'all on, uh, online last week. And it was a bummer that we got snowed in, but it's a praise because now I get to preach twice. And I absolutely love it and love to see your faces. It feels very weird to not have a mask on, but we love the freedom. And I got to give two disclaimers before we get started here this morning. The first is that I get very excited sometimes and I start to speak very, very fast. So I'll be mindful to be slower here this morning. Also, it's going to happen. I'm going to sweat. I am prepared. It's not because there's something wrong with me. I'm just chubby, okay? <laughs> this beard right here is not to look mean. It's to look lean. Come on. I'm going to hide this double chin in Jesus' name. <laughs> I'm just teasing, but this is my family here. It's my wife, Nikki. We have been married now 15 years, uh, last November. And then my son, Gabriel, he is six foot tall, size 13 in men's shoe. He's only 14 years old, and he's got a dream in his heart to play Division I basketball. So we are praying for 6'4", and wherever in Texas he's going to end up on, we're going to be excited to cheer him on. Well, I'm excited, and I just want to share this morning a bit of my story and what God has done in the last 20 years of ministry with my family and I. And we have not just been through amazing testimonies of what God has done in our lives, but we've been through hell. We've been through some very, very challenging times. And I want to share that story just so that you have a background on, on our family, have a little bit of an insight on who we are, but also to set up what I want to speak on today about how able our God really is. Now, my family and I, we were born and raised in San Diego, California. Don't hold that against us. We weren't born in Texas, but we got here as quick as we could. <laughs> and we're excited to be here. We love Texas. If I won the lottery, I'd be right here. I wouldn't go anywhere else in the world. I say that to every one of my friends. We love it here. But we were born in San Diego, and I was raised in a Christian home. My mom converted to Christianity when I was in the third grade. We went to a mega church. Uh, this church was about 14,000 people hated it. I was a class clown. They always kicked me out and told me to wait for my parents after church. Never loved church. And by the time I was in high school, my mom said, I'm tired of dragging you to church. You can come with me or you can stay home and watch football with dad. So I stayed home and watched football with dad. <laughs> and then in my sophomore year of high school, a very energetic Puerto Rican friend of mine uh, begged me, pestered me to come to her church. Said, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. No, thank you. But she persisted so much that I finally gave in. And that Wednesday night, November of 1999, the sermon was exactly for me. I was met with love. I wasn't kicked out. I gave my life to the Lord that night. That was November of 1999. And by March of 2000, I was on staff at a church of 5,000 people. I was working partly in the youth ministry, working in the maintenance team as well, part-time as I was finishing up high school. And by the time I was 18, the youth pastor had left and they allowed me to take over as the high school pastor. And it was there that I met my wife. She wasn't in high school, but I met her there. She came to that church, and it was love at first sight. And we fell in love. 11 months later, we were married. And then about a year later, we had my son, uh, Gabriel. 
So we served at that church for about seven years. It was great. It was wonderful. We loved it, but unfortunately, the church was in massive decline. It went from about 4,000 to 1,000, and they got to a place financially where they couldn't hold, uh, hold our, our positions anymore. And so they gave us a few months' notice, but there I was, newly married, with a three-month-old son in a one-bedroom apartment on the wrong side of the tracks, now with no job. And it was my first opportunity as a young man to see how able my God is, the first opportunity to see the faithfulness of my God. And very shortly after the Assemblies of God Church that my wife gave her heart to the Lord at, uh, we made a phone call, and it just so happened at a uh, circumstance that they needed a youth pastor. So one thing led to another, and about 3,000 interviews later, and we finally got the, the job there. And so for 11 years, we served at that Assemblies of God Church. We went from being youth pastors to teaching pastors to taking over a dying sister church that we turned into a campus, and we raised that family to be our own family. And this is where the story gets really interesting. Towards the end of the five years of running that campus, the senior pastor who was uh, now in his 60s was saying, you know, I've, I've been doing this position for 25 years, and I really think it's a time uh, for me to move on and do some more out-of-the-state kind of preaching and have you come alongside and to take the senior role. And I had a, a thriving congregation in North San Diego, and we loved them like family. We had multiple young families. The, the place was bursting at the seams, and we loved that little church. But to be able to take over the entire church and all of its campuses, we couldn't say no to. We felt the Lord on it. So we moved our congregation from that little place, that little church, to the main church. And this entire time, I had no idea that the senior pastor was in moral sin for decades. And I hadn't known this, but some of the staff and board members had found out his wife had caught him in the sin. They had found out, and they were working at talking to the district to get him removed. And this entire year, he was manipulating and moving things and people around, myself included, to get us to a place where he could lay us off due to finances and ultimately try to get his son-in-law, who was also on staff, to take over the senior role. So we felt betrayed, we felt manipulated, and right before the district removed him, uh, he laid us off due to finances, and there we were again, a second time, not planning to leave a church, but in another opportunity to see God's faithfulness. So we had no idea what to do, and obviously there were people who we had known for 11 years and built relationship and family with. They were upset, and I was already starting to interview at other places. We were already looking at Texas. In 2016, we took a long prayer journey. I don't know if you know this or not, but Texas is huge. <laughs> it takes a long time to go from San Antonio to Tyler to Dallas and all the way back around, but we prayed, and we said, this, this has to be it. And so we were looking and applying but before we accepted anything, there were friends and family that said, you can't leave us. You can't leave us. You have to stay. We'll be your worship team. We'll be your children's ministry. And with the own money that we had, we funded our salary. We funded a church plant. And within one week, we launched a church. We had a small core group of people. And for the next 18 months, we, we launched Tribe Church. And you'll still see us with the hats and the t-shirts and the coffee mugs. It was a, a dear part of our history. And we did that for a while. I worked two full-time jobs in Southern California to afford a $3,000 two-bedroom apartment right next to the city jail. You can wave at the criminals. <laughs> and it just began to get harder and harder. Though ministry was always easy, working a full-time job and, and trying to keep up with all the demands, my body physically was falling apart. 
And it was through tears. I mean, I wept before my wife so many nights and through tears that I said, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I spoke with many of my pastor friends. I, I always have pastor friends on my side. Lots of counsel, lots of prayer. And we decided, hey, the 501c3 is there. The people are there. The teams are there. They just need a new leader. And we resigned as lead pastors there and, and offered to many of my pastor friends who were either retired or didn't have a place of ministry. And unfortunately, no one wanted to take it. And so we dissolved that church. And there we were left, again, <laughs> to see the faithfulness of God and to see that he was able and not knowing what we were going to do and, and going through multiple interview processes and being in, in a pool of 300 candidates and getting right up to the top just to lose by a vote. And we went through this over and over and over again. And finally, the time came to renew our apartment lease. And I'm not saying yes to $3,000 a month again. And so we just took a step of faith and we packed everything in a storage unit. We moved into a Motel 6. And I say multiple Motel 6s because you can only stay for 21 days at a time before they consider you a resident. So technically homeless. And believing God, you're going to bring something right around the corner. You're going to provide for us. You're going to bring us that great church. You're going to give us that great opportunity, that great position. And we waited and we waited and we waited. Finally, we, we purchased an RV. A friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, had an RV site at his church. And so he let us stay there for free while we figured things out. And it was in the winter of 2018, we got a very awesome tax return. And I prayed and I looked to my wife and I said, we can stay here and have this tax return eke away. Or we can take a huge step of faith. And if we feel God has called us to Texas, let's go. And so everything that we owned was in that RV. And we just said bye to all of our friends and family, sold everything that we owned. And we literally picked a spot in San Antonio and went. And praise God that about a month after we, we landed here in Texas, a great temporary opportunity in ministry popped up. It was for a, a, a conference stadium ministry called One Hope. And they were trying to launch this huge uh, stadium event before COVID hit. And so I worked with them for several months, and that eventually led me to an opportunity here in Dallas, in Oak Cliff, where I'm currently serving as an associate pastor. So the last three years have been interesting. The last three years have been very rough. But one thing that I know is that God is able, that God has provided, that God is faithful, and he always will be. And it's another thing when you yourself have gone through it, and you've seen the goodness of God, and you have that testimony to stand on, and there's something that comes alive in you, a confidence that you can't get from anywhere else. And I discovered and I learned during these several years that God is not a God who just wants to rescue us. Oh, he's a savior. He's a rescuer, he's a healer, he's a deliverer, but he doesn't just want to rescue us. In Deuteronomy 6.23, I love this phrase. Several years ago, I read it, and it just, one of those scriptures that kind of slaps you in the face and, and captures your attention, and it says, the Lord brought them out from there in order to bring them into the land of promise. See, God didn't just pull the Israelites out of bondage for the sake of rescuing them. He brought them out because that wasn't their identity. He brought them out in order to bring them into their place of promise. There's so much more than just surviving. Christianity is not just about surviving our bad circumstances. It's about transforming into the image of Christ, who is the victorious one. And I'm telling you, there is so much more. And we simply cannot miss out on what God wants to do in the bad times and in the good times. And then the seasons that we know we need to go to, 
that God is calling us to and, and pulling on us to go to, but we're too afraid because it might involve pain or it might involve difficulty or stretching us outside of our comfort zone. But God wants to do big things, and we cannot be afraid of the victory that he has given before us. I say this a lot, that, that the Israelites were so afraid of the uncharted territories of the promised land that they self-sabotaged themselves over and over to go back to the familiar grounds of the wilderness. We can't afford that. The Bible says that we are more than conquerors. In the New American Standard, it says that we overwhelmingly conquer in him. We are called to so much more. And so today, I want to read a scripture that God brought to me. If you were there last week on the Zoom, you heard me give a testimony of the song, uh, Take Courage, where it says that God is in the waiting. Take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. And it was in that moment that even though I've been a minister for 20 years, it dawned on me, God wants to meet me right here in the middle. He's not waiting for me at the end of my trial. He's right here, and he will give me something that I can't get at any other time in my life. And so I want to read a very quick portion of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, found in Daniel chapter 3. If you got a Bible, you can go there with me. If you got an electronic version, you can do that as well. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Any New American Standard versions? Come on, somebody. Amen. It's my favorite. I always read from this. Hopefully, we really know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a phenomenal story. It's a long, long chapter in the Bible. But I just want to look at a few verses, about five here this morning, starting in verse 16. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able. Is able. I'm telling you, you're going to see that phrase from Genesis with Abraham all the way to the book of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith, chapter 11, that God is able. He is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not and we're not going to serve your gods of worship or the golden image that you have set up. And then if we can scroll down to about verse 24, and we know that they were thrown into the fire. More likely, they jumped in themselves because they had faith. It says, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king was astounded and stood up in haste. And he said to the high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied, O king, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men loosed and walking around in the middle of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth was the son of God's, in which we know is Jesus. And I love that. They were in the middle of the fire. It says they were loosed. They weren't bound. Their chains came off, but they themselves weren't burned and even smelled the smoke. And it says Jesus himself was walking in the middle of it. And the result of these young men who dared to see that God was able, the result of their faith and, and their courage they had and the faithfulness of their God was one of the most massive revivals that history has ever seen. But they brought Jesus in the middle. I don't know about you. There's a lot of ways to die. Being burned alive is not one that I want to do. <laughs> but can you imagine standing before a furnace turned seven times hotter and standing before it and saying, I trust my God. And, I, and they didn't even pray for the fire to be extinguished. They didn't even pray for it to be gone. They didn't, they didn't cry out and beg God, please remove me from this. They said, God, just meet me in the fire. 
And I love that because so many times we can have a temptation or a burden or hurt or something in our hearts that we've got. God, for so many years I've dealt with this. Can you just take it from me? Can you just remove this temptation? Can you just remove this hurt? And God is faithful. He can do that. But how much more powerful when we say, God, would you meet me in this pain? God, would you meet me in this trial? God, would you meet me right here and walk with me to where I'm still in freedom in the middle of this season, but you want to declare a specific word to me. God wants to tell you something in the middle of your season. And when we went through the last three years of all that we went through, and I'm telling you, that was the condensed version of our story. He spoke specific things to my heart, things that have fortified my soul that I know that for the rest of my life, I'll be able to endure certain things because of what he taught me. If you're taking notes, so one of the first encouragements he gave me was that we need a history with God. We need a history, our own personal history with God. See, as a minister, I can pray for you. I can lay hands on you. I can encourage you. I can train you. I can build you up. I can sit by your hospital bed, but you can't have my history. You have to get your own history. I can't impart and give away my history to you, my 20 years, my my education, my study, my revelations that God has given to me on a personal level. I can't give that to you. But each and every one of us need a fortified history with God. And you don't have to turn there, but I just want to read to you real quickly in Hebrews 11, another part where we're going to see God is able, the story of Abraham. And God showed me so many times with Abraham's story and his faithfulness with his son how powerfully able he is. And in verse 17 of Hebrews 11, just a a few verses here, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promise, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he whom it was said, And Isaac, your descendants, shall be called. He considered that God, here it is again, God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type a type, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus. We know that Isaac, who was the only begotten son, where Abraham was searching for three days where the sacrifice was going to happen, wood was laid on his back. It's all Jesus. It's all a foreshadowing of Jesus. But I love Abraham, where he had to take his only son, who he waited for a hundred years. And God's like, great, now that I finally gave you this victory and promise, go kill it. (laughs) Go sacrifice it to me. Give it back to me. And he didn't hesitate. The Bible says that he got up early in the morning to go sacrifice his son. I mean, if God ever speaks a word, hesitate, it's going to be on that day. But he went and he obeyed. And I love that it says that even if I do have to go through with this and sacrifice my son, I believe that God is able to raise the dead. Now we know, we've seen Jesus' resurrection. We've seen resurrections in the Bible. We've seen Lazarus. We know resurrection. But Abraham... The first founding father, he he did not ever see a resurrection. So here's a man who's waited 100 years building history with God. And the biggest test of his life comes. But because he knows God, where intimacy brings clarity, he was able to trust God. And he says, my God can even raise the dead, something nobody on earth has ever seen before. And that's what happens when we have a history with God. That's what happens when we have intimacy. We begin to see things that nobody else on earth can see. We begin to dream things that no other are are dreaming. We begin to have a vision of the promises of God in our lives, and it brings a courage. It brings an intimacy that sets us free. Now, my encouragement to us and, and what I had to do 
Many times when I sat at the end of a motel bed, literally with $20 left in my pocket, sitting there, God, I don't want to feel dry. I don't want to feel doubtful. So it's in this moment I need you to meet me here. And I had to press into him. And what I learned is that if you want to draw near to God, it's very, very simple. Just be with him. Just be with him. And you'll be amazed that when you're just with God, a, a natural desire for him begins to grow hotter and hotter and hotter for you. You just simply need to be with him. And I can't tell you how many times I sat there at the edge of that bed and I had 20 bucks, but I got a phone call. Because the Lord put it on my heart, hey, I'm sending you a check for $1,000. Time and time and time again. But one of my, my biggest values of my heart was to say, God, no matter what we go through, whether we don't have a home, we have no idea where our next step is, we don't want to feel drifted from you. We have to have a history with God. The second thing is hope, having hope. Hope is not a wish. Hope is not just begging. Hope is not just crossing your fingers and praying that it, it turns out for your favor. It is a powerful weapon in the kingdom of God. For two years on my cell phone, on the screensaver, I had Romans 4, 18 through 21. And every single day I would look, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. Though he considered his body as good as dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not grow weak in doubt, but grew strong in faith that he was convinced that God was able to perform that which he promised. I went over that scripture over and over and over again. But I'm telling you, the, the first couple times that I looked at the scripture, I was a little bit confused. Because it says, in hope, against hope. I'm thinking, why would we be against hope? And when I dug into the original Greek, I discovered that the two words for hope in, in verse 18 are actually two completely different words. The first definition is a confident expectation of good. The second word is a confident expectation of evil. So this verse is more better translated with a positive expectation of good against a positive expectation of evil, Abraham believed. It's the renewing of the mind. Hope is an expectation. And I believe that our expectation sets up our destination. Our expectation determines whether we're going to keep our attention on God or we're going to allow the devil to keep lying to us and mess with us. One thing I'm convinced of is, according to Hebrews 2.14, Jesus rendered the devil powerless. 1 John 3.8, it says, the reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil has no more power. It's not this dualism of the devil's power and God's power, and we're going to see who's going to win. No, he has lost. Colossians says he is going to be made a public spectacle. It's a done deal. The devil is nothing more than a death row inmate who wants to scare you. His fate is already sealed. He just wants to lie to you, convince you, make you be filled with doubt and fear. And that's why it's so incredibly important for us to renew our minds and stand on hope that if it's not lined up with the word of God, that thought needs to be gone. If the father isn't thinking about it, I don't want to think about it. I want to stand with a confident expectation of what my God can do. And hope is so powerful. Excuse me for this graphic story I'm about to tell you. It's a true story. If you're a vegan, I don't know if anybody in Texas is, but if you're a vegan, you're not going to like this at all. But there was a test done, a scientific test with lab rats. And what they did is they took one rat, they put it in a bucket of water, and they counted how long it would take for that little rat to give up swimming and start to drown. And they counted 23 minutes to first go around. Then they took a second 
rat. Same bucket of water. They put him in, and at 22 minutes, they pulled that rat out. Gave it a minute break. Put it back in. At 20 minutes, they pulled it out. Gave it a minute break. They did this over and over again for 48 hours. Where one rat gave up hope the moment it saw bad circumstances. The end is near. But the other rat who was just given just a little bit of hope could endure so much longer. And, and my wife and I know about the power of hope because one email can set something like this up. One phone call can turn your life around. One encounter with a godly believer can shake off what you've been bound by for so many years. God can do something at any moment and around any corner. He is so able. But if we can't partner with him in hope, how can we make these things become a manifestation and a realization in our real lives? Have a history. Know who your God is. Know that he is for me, not against me. Know that he wants to give me good things, and he is a good father who does not do evil. He's not the author of sickness. He is not the author of evil. He's a God who is for me. Then have a hope that says, I don't care what the world is saying, what the media is saying, what the enemy is saying. I know what my God has done for me. I know what he is capable of. My God can create anything out of nothing. He did it in this whole universe. And then finally, the power of guarding the heart our history, our hope, and finally, the heart. Guarding the heart, daring to believe. I love in Genesis 18, 14, we hear the famous phrase, is anything too difficult for the Lord? But I love what came before that. It's where God tells Abraham and Sarah that you're going to have a child, even at 90 years old, and Sarah laughs. And God says, why did you laugh? And she does the dumbest thing recorded in the Bible. She lied to God and said, no, I didn't. <laughs> She lied to God. And then God affirmed himself by saying, is anything too difficult for the Lord? We have to have hearts that are guarded. So many times Jesus talked about guarding the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard the heart above all else for it is the wellspring of life. We can't allow our emotions to lead us. They need to follow us, to harness our emotions, to guard our hearts, to grow strong in faith because God is able. Right now in our society, we're so... Uh, into this trendy topic of self-care. You know, go get that manicure, go get that pedicure, take a spa day, take a day on the couch to watch football, make sure that you're sleeping well. Self-care is a big trendy thing right now. But it's also a very biblical thing. It says in, in Luke 5, 16, that Jesus often got away to lonely places to pray, to rest. And I love how the scriptures say lonely places. Not Jesus went to be alone. If you're a child of God, you are never, ever, ever alone. But Jesus noted the most important thing in, in my life, and this is the Savior who came to rescue the world, to bring salvation. He says, I got a million people to heal, a million demons to cast out, a bunch of bodies that need to be raised from the dead, but before I do anything, I need to be before the Father. In John 5, I don't do anything unless the Father's doing it. I don't say anything unless the Father has said it. Jesus was so in tune with the Father, and he guarded his heart and took the time, praying all night, getting away to solitary places, resting. He told his disciples, come away with me and rest for a little while to make sure that we're not only after in this world the hand of God, but we want the face of God more than anything. And through any trial, through any situation that we go through, we want him and only him. He is our great reward. 
He is all that we are after. We're on this side of eternity for such a short amount of time, but for all eternity, we're going to be before the Father. And that has to be the sole prize of our heart and our soul. And I'll conclude here today with a a story I heard while mopping floors as a maintenance man in a 60,000 square foot facility while I was a church planter. This happened very often. Had my headphones in, I worked nine hour shifts, heard sermons, conferences, audio books, worship. So many times I mop it. It's so good, God. And everybody's at the workstation, it's like, what's wrong with this guy? I mean, when the glory hits, the glory hits, and I don't care how it looked. But I remember listening to this sermon one time, and the guy was giving the background story to the great hymn, It's Well With My Soul. Horatio Spafford, over 100 years ago, a successful lawyer. This is a guy who invested in real estate, had a wonderful family, a wife, a son, four daughters. And one year, the great Chicago fire came and wiped out all of his investments, all of his money. And that same year, pneumonia took the life of his young son. Now, reeling from the grief of all that they had lost in the death of their son, Mr. Spafford said, we need to just get away, like Jesus, get away to rest. So they booked a European vacation. They ordered their tickets on a large boat. And the day came to leave. But at the last moment, there was very, very life and death urgent matters that he needed to attend to. And so he says, you guys go ahead of me. I'll be on the next boat out, but I got to take care of this. As the ship sailed in the middle of the Atlantic, their vessel was struck by another vessel. All four of his daughters drowned. His wife survived, was picked up by another boat, brought to Wales, and she sent a telegram, said, I alone have survived. What shall I do? He was on the next boat. He went out there, and as they're traveling the Atlantic, the captain stopped the boat and in a moment of silence said, Sir, I can't proceed unless I give you the opportunity here to see the very spot where your daughters were taken from this life, where your daughters were taken from this earth. And it was there on the bow of the boat that he looked to his father and he penned these words that have encouraged millions. It is well with my soul. Though, though waves of sorrow, though, those streams and, and billows and, and all these, these expressions of his pain, he said, it is well, it is well with my soul. That is the ultimate, the ultimate test of, is God the sole prize of my heart? And whether you go through a rough patch in life, you're in a bad season, you're facing some very scary things in your life, God is able, and he wants to do more than just rescue you. He wants to speak to you, He wants to build you up, and he wants to position you from what he's called you to even before you even conceived. God is a good God. And I stand here as a testimony time after time after time of seeing his faithfulness, but challenged and challenged and challenged at how much God wants to use us and move in and through us. Uh, Let me pray for you, and and band, if if you want to come up and play, maybe maybe that song that we love so much, um, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by him. I love how song can capture what a sermon has been trying to say. But let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for my friends here, and I thank you, God, for what you're doing in and through this church. I thank you for the history of this church, the legacy, the incredible pastors who have come in and through here. And I thank you, God, that it is no coincidence that you are putting a church here in the middle of something that is exploding. Population, new people, new buildings, new opportunities. 
And I pray, God, that this church would not just be a church that's here to sing songs and hear a good word and be stirred up, but a church that is alive in you, that wants to see you move powerfully in revival in and through this place. May hearts come to know you through this place. May people give their lives to you. May miracles, signs, and wonders take place here. But I pray for every single heart within the sound of my voice. God, that in some way they would be encouraged today to leave knowing that you are able. I declare in the Holy Spirit a supernatural faith, a supernatural joy, and a supernatural courage to rise up and to see a dream that has been dormant, to take on a challenge they've been afraid of, but ultimately, Father, to go after your face, your presence, more than they ever have in their lives. Thank you for my new friends here. Thank you for what you're doing in this place. Go before us now in Jesus' name. Amen.